I had no emotion in my heart at all until you clapped like that. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> this is um, my last sermon as a full-time member of North Central because I will be semi-retired from April on. Um, and it's actually a little bit of a hard word. I, I, I want to thank you for the kind words, Dr. Tennyson, for the clapping and the applause. I actually intend to weaken the accolades a little bit uh, by feeling good about you clapping for me, but also pointing out what reality is. And uh, that, that's why the title of my sermon today, I don't know if he'll have it up there or not, is, Who Do You Think You Are? Hmm. So I belong to Sojourn Campus Church. Uh, Craig Kruger's the pastor. A lot of you have had class with him. He's a really outstanding Bible preacher, which is why I'm in that church, and especially Old Testament. I have learned more about Old Testament from him than I did in my years at Fuller Seminary. And uh, he, this month in January, we have a call to prayer every January and fasting. And um, three weeks ago, he was setting it up by uh, talking about things that we need to know and do to be effective in prayer, and he used Jeremiah chapter 9 um, to call the congregation uh, to prayer by saying, what's the first step to effective prayer? The first step is knowing God, duh, right? Um, if you're going to pray to God, I hope you know him. Uh, how will you be effective in prayer if you don't? And I'm going to read that scripture to you now. Um, I do suggest, I think they will put some of the scriptures up, but if you have your Bible, it still works. It still works, and you should. Um, I'd rather have you look in your own Bible than to read it off of the screen because it will enforce your knowledge of scripture, which is part of knowledge of God, right? So, and a hard copy Bible is better than a screen Bible. So, if you have one, pull it out. Jeremiah 9, starting in verse 23. So, I was just sitting in church on the floor in the back, as I usually do. Actually, I would think I was in a chair that day. And uh, um, he put this up and read it. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, says God, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, I think that's the word chesed, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Now we were, you know, he went on with his sermon and I got stuck there because I thought to myself, oh, because I know the New Testament, right? That's what was in Paul's head when he wrote to the Corinthians, who are big boasters. Um, and uh, we'll be reading from chapter 1, starting in 26 early, uh, later, but for now I'm just going to read the end of his little rant uh, to them. It says, uh, starting somewhere like 
you know, he's saying God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, and so on. It is because of him, God, that you are in Messiah Jesus, who has become for us wisdom. Where's the wisdom? From God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then I looked at the context, as you should. Um, And first of all, looking back at Jeremiah. So this is where you find out that a screen Bible isn't all that useful. You want to look around. You want to slide your eyes over the text and see what the context of that verse is about. It's not so easy to do that with a screen. With a paper Bible, you can glance around and say, "What's, what's going on here? And you can see that the exhortation in Jeremiah is surrounded by chapters full of hard words, God's warning to his people that they had done evil. They were far from him, which is the opposite of knowing him. And let's just look at a few examples in chapter 8. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome contact? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. 819, listen to the cry of my people. They're shouting, is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king no longer there? God says, why have they provoked me to anger with their images and their worthless foreign idols? Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. Is there no balm in Gilead? Uh, Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. This might be the prophet himself here. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They grow from one sin to another. They are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. And it goes on like that both before and after the verses that we read. Well, that makes it fit even better with what Paul's writing to the Corinthians. Because you might be aware that the church in Corinth was pretty messed up. It was a lot about uh, pride and sin. The members of this church were people who had come to faith in Jesus. They're real Christians out of the Greco-Roman worldview. So they're not Jewish background. And they had brought a whole lot of baggage with them. For example, they wanted to look good in their society. So they were treating their leaders the way a leader would have Uh, A a Greco-Roman leader would have been admired as a sophist, a man who gathered followers based on wise and impressive speeches. And people would follow him around and become his disciples. So therefore, the proud announcements, I am of Paul, well, I am of Apollos, well, I am of Cephas, I'm of Christ, the most spiritual, of course. And to anchor and support this tribalism, they are boasting of their spiritual superiority to each other, claiming to have wisdom and power and nobility. And this is likely the biggest issue in Corinth because it's the one Paul hits first. And it's very quickly, already in chapter 1, he's, he's hitting this head on. And he does not praise them for their pride. And now let's read from verse 20. 
sarcastically, Paul says, where's the wise man or woman? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In the wisdom of God, so it was God in his wisdom made this happen, that the world, through wisdom, could not know God. So God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And here's a key verse. He starts by saying the Jews demand signs, and that's actually not about miracles, not the Jews demanding miracles, but demanding signs as in the sign prophet, who they are expecting, the prophet like Moses, who would be the Messiah. So they're demanding signs from Jesus and from others to say, are you really the Messiah? Show us a sign. Okay, so Jews are demanding signs. Greeks don't care about that. What do they want? They want wisdom. Let's have wisdom. Sophia. And then he says, this is what we preach, though. We proclaim a crucified Messiah. Ha! Huh. A crucified Messiah. We, we always say Christ crucified, and that sounds so poetic and nice. A crucified Messiah. <coughs> That's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks or Gentiles. But for the people who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, that message is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's where the power and wisdom is in a crucified Messiah. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Speaking of weakness today, brothers and sisters, think about what you were when you were called. And now he's really digging it in. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's you, foolish ones. He chose you to shame the wise. God chose you weak ones to shame the strong. And here, I don't, I'm not using my Greek today, but I know what this first word is, agamos. He chose the lowly things. That actually, um, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that word in chapel, so I won't. It starts with a B. It means somebody who is born illegitimately, right? He's calling them that, right? You so-and-sos of this world and the despised things and the things that don't even have substance to nullify the things that are. So no one can boast before him because you're, you are weak and poor and illegitimate. It's only because of him that you are, now here's your identity, in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. And what is that wisdom? Our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, let him who boasts Boast in the Lord. How often have your pastors and leaders spoken to you like that? You bunch of weaklings and... Oh, yeah? Well, okay. There's a different church tradition here, right? I can see that. Most, most of the white AG pastors, they're just saying pretty th- fluffy things, right? 
So we might some, have some healthier Christianity sitting here. Um, but for us white folks, if, if our pastors talked to us that way, we would stomp out of the church and go looking for a place where people are nicer. And I've got 60 years behind me now, more than, and I've witnessed plenty of Christians leaving churches in a huff. Now, there's a difference between being spiritually abused, which is a reason to leave a church, and being rebuked for bad behavior or attitude. And most of the time, those folks just take their poisonous pride to another church. Or maybe they stop going to church altogether because they're too good for it, and they grow even colder and more distant from God and his people. Well, after rebuking the Christians even more in chapter 2, so you can read that yourself later, And in chapter 3, Paul gets theological, and he says in 3.18, don't deceive yourselves, he's still telling them a lot of the same stuff here. If anyone thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so he can be really wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Skip down to 21. So then, no more boasting about people. Not I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. No, You don't belong to Paul or Apollos. They belong to you. And this is a really important statement here. Not you belong to Greg Boyd or to Craig Kruger or to any pastor in this city. You don't belong to them. You don't go to his church. He belongs to the church of God, that pastor, he or she. That pastor, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or or belongs to you, the church, And then he waxes eloquent. And and the world, and life, and death, and the present, and the future, they all belong to you, church. And you, church, belong to Christ, Messiah, and Messiah belongs to God. It's not that you belong to your little tribe and can be proud of your special leaders, but the leaders belong to you, the church, And everything belongs to the church. And the church belongs to God. And that actually reminds me of Paul's statement in Ephesians 1.23 that I always puzzle over. Ephesians 1.23, we won't turn there, but you might want to write it down and look at it again. He says that the church is the fullness of him, Jesus, who fills all in all. I can't even get that in my head What does that mean? Well, this is a reflection of that. He just said, everything belongs to the church, and the church belongs to God, right? You, you, the church, are the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, so Paul's point, they have nothing to boast about. Their identities are not special, They are weak and poor and illegitimate, and their leaders are no different. It's interesting to look ahead in chapter 4, then, where he tells about all the struggles that leaders go through. Chapter 4, verse 7. Well, let's start with 8. Oh, you have all you want. Already you're rich. You've become kings and that without us, the leaders. Oh, I wish you really had become kings, because then we could be kings with you. Instead, God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe. We are 
fools for Christ. I know that you're wise, but we are fools. Uh, we're weak, but oh yeah, you're strong. He's being very sarcastic here. Understand. You are honored, huh? but we are dishonored. But we leaders, we go hungry and thirsty, and we're in rags, and we're brutally treated, and we're homeless, and we work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse or the garbage of the world. Whoo, that's a very strong statement. And then he says, I'm not writing this to shame you. Yeah, yeah, right, Paul. Okay. These are hard words that may seem foreign to us. We don't usually hear them aimed at us. And at other times in church history, there probably was too much tendency to rebuke the saints and tear them down, make them feel bad, and come crawling on their knees for repentance to God. And some of you, and I listen carefully here, some of you have been raised in homes where there were only words of discouragement and criticism. And I want to urge you to be careful to understand my words today correctly and that I'm not tearing you down in that way. But for the large majority of you, the children of the helicopter parents, some of whom are still checking in to see if you did your homework this week, and the participation trophies, and the politically correct language, and the sappy worship songs. Me and Jesus, we're so happy. You, you might need to make yourself aware that you're not all that special. Who do you think you are? Now, your understanding of your identity might be the result of a necessary corrective away from our past tra tradition of criticizing and rebuking. Your parents grew up more in that, probably, or grandparents. But it's gone too far in the other direction. And American Christianity is really arrogant. And maybe the baby boomers are to fault for this. But we think we have the right to comfort the right to an easy life, and you'll see this reflected in sermons and worship, the right to be wasteful and abusive of the environment, because God gave it to us after all, this, to the right to refuse to share our wealth with the needy, the right to happiness in our relationships, and if they don't make us happy, we leave them. This crazy schizophrenic attitude of Christians, that either I'm going to be against abortion or I'm going to be for immigration, but I can't be both. Doesn't God call us to be on the side of the weakest members of society in both of those issues? Oh, how about this one? The right to good grades. Dr. Amy, I have to pass this class after overskipping or not handing in the homework. <laughs> this class is too hard compared to high school or what? Did you, I mean, college is not summer camp. It's a full-time job, and the goal is not to check off boxes. The goal, the reason you're here is to train your mind 
to give you tools for the future, and those tools need to be internalized. Just typing it into your laptop doesn't mean you know it in your head. And it's about learning wisdom and skill and character. And I just got off of my hobby horse there. Okay, back to this. Okay. Um, or the right, when I'm supporting my agenda to twist the scripture to fit it. I know better than 2,000 years of church history. Who do you think you are? So I, I'm going to use the metaphor of the toilet to drive this home today. I've spent 21 years here at North Central. I've seen a lot of toilets. You can tell if a person, a young person in this case, has been discipled well as a child by how they leave the bathroom. Do they make sure it's cleaner after they use it than when they first walked in? If you use the toilet and things get messy, do you just walk away and leave it? Who do you think is going to clean up your mess for you? Are you better than the cleaning lady or your mom or your wife? Who do you think you are? Now, I have a toilet story that I'm not very proud of. Oops, I need to leave that here a minute. Uh, I, um, I spent nine years as a missionary in Germany, and in my first year there, I was learning German and working as an assistant to an established ministry. And I went to a church that was started by missionaries Harold and Agnes Schmidt, who I don't think anyone here probably knows. They were both very short, and Harold was an old white-haired guy, and they, they never got very good at German, but just through love and persistence, they had started from zero and raised up the biggest church in Munich. And that means a couple hundred people, because churches aren't very big in Germany. Um, and they, you, you don't just go out and buy land and build a church building in Europe. There is no land to be bought. Um, so they had bought an old sewing factory, and they were fixing it up uh, in order to make it into a church. And I, as a missionary assistant um, and learning German and not having a whole lot of ministry of my own yet, I volunteered one day a week at the sewing factory, and they taught me how to glaze windows, which I was very proud of. I, glazing windows means you take the old broken window out and you put a new pane in and you put this um, putty around it to make it hold solid. Has anybody glazed windows? Oh, there's a few hands around. Good, good, good. Okay. Um, I was good at it. And I was the window glazer. And this sewing factory actually had a whole lot of windows with little tiny panes. So I was busy. And one day I was there glazing windows and someone, I don't remember who it was, came and asked me, so it was a Saturday. Could you please also clean the bathrooms uh, because we have church tomorrow? And I thought, I'm the window glazer. I don't clean bathrooms. And I said no. And, you know, I just kind of, I don't know how I refused. It probably was with that kind of like, oh, no, I have to, sort of thing like that. And the person walked away and didn't make me do it. And I came to church the next morning and I think somebody made sure that I heard this. Uh, but they didn't say it to me directly, but I heard someone saying, you know, Harold cleaned the bathrooms yesterday. The little white-haired pastor who had started that church 20 years before, he cleaned the bathrooms because I was too proud. Because it was below me. I've never forgotten that lesson. 
Think about, think about why Peter doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet. Is it because it's not something Jesus should do? Or is it because Peter's thinking, if I was the Lord, I wouldn't wash feet? Right? It's Peter's, it's Peter's pride in what he thinks is proper for a leader. So, yeah, I can ignore social justice issues. That's not my problem. I can keep my faith to myself and let my neighbors go to hell. I can leave my spouse if life isn't fun together anymore. I can use up the environment because God gave it to us to lord it over it, right? I can expect other people, lower people, to clean up after me because it's all about making me happy and not about the mess that I've been trailing behind me. Yesterday, Dr. Pruitt made several statements that were a great setup for today. He pointed out that we perceive the world in relationship to ourselves. We go through the world with our ego in the middle. God's proximity is governed by how I feel. In my Johanny literature class, I talk about how we are so self-centered that God, God is the sum total of what I myself am experiencing. And I don't think about the fact that he's in very many other places. I'm, I'm always, almost every single time that a missions team goes out with young people for the first time to another country, they come back and say, wow, when we were in church, they were worshiping God just like we do. What did you think? That God is only in Minneapolis? Like that he hasn't been in Guatemala or Nigeria for the last, to all of human history? It's so funny. It's like wherever I am, that's where God is. Or I'm a son or daughter of the king. You know, God should... You know, you use the, the term, God has a lot of explaining to do. Like, why isn't he treating me the way I ought to be treated as a son or daughter of the king? I should be reigning. I should be blessed. There's an interview that I posted on my Facebook group called the Biblical Literacy Project, which you might want to join. Biblical Literacy Project, um, if you want to learn more about Bible. It's uh, by theologian Kevin Van Hooser. And he pointed out that people talk about God and pray to God. So we make some room for God in our lives, but we are still the heroes of our own stories. The only hero of your story should be God. Pastors should be teaching this to their congregations. The hero of your story is God how many of our worship songs pull the attention to us? How good God makes me feel. You know, and there, there is a place for that because it is true. God has fixed you. God has changed you. God has saved you. But is it all about you? It should be all about him. He's the hero. We should be focusing on him in worship. Van Hooser suggests that biblical literacy, biblical literacy, is the way to correct this misconception that I am the hero of my story. Now, when I say biblical literacy, I don't mean just reading the Bible a lot, although you should. 
Um, it means taking advantage of every opportunity to learn to think biblically. Not like I read it as if it was written for the 21st century. I learn about my Bible and I understand how it meant, was meant originally so that I can apply it correctly now. Um, here you are at North Central where you could take as many Bible and theology classes as you wish. I say these things in every sermon, I know. But even though, uh, even though it's not required for graduation anymore, you don't have to take even a single Bible class to graduate. Um, but you could decide not to be biblically illiterate and take some classes. You have these resources available here right now. It doesn't even cost you more with block pricing. It's not that God is part of my story, but that I'm part of God's story. Everything belongs to us, the church, but we belong to Messiah. Messiah belongs to God. So let's get the alignment correct here. We ought to be praying, as we do in the Lord's Prayer, for God's will to be done, not for our will to sway God. We ought to be orienting our lives to his kingdom, not building our own kingdom. You shouldn't be thinking of yourself as too special or important to do the lowest job, whether that's changing diapers or picking up trash or making coffee. You shouldn't think of yourself as so important to the world that you can't take a Sabbath day. You should be asking God how to spend your money. A lot more of it will end up going to the poor and missions than to hot drinks and restaurant meals and unneeded new clothes. When you are making money and married and think, wow, you know, let's settle in the suburbs and have a wonderful home and a wonderful life, mm, you shouldn't assume that, well, how are we going to decide what house to buy? We'll look for the best school district or the most prestigious area. Don't you, you, you uh, so you shouldn't, I guess I said that backwards, you shouldn't assume that you should buy a house in the best school district, nor should you buy more house than you need or more car than you need. Because God might want you to be salt and light in the inner city and take public transit. Or even be free of mortgage payments so you can serve the kingdom better. Do we all, are we all called to the suburbs? I don't think so. If you're a pastor or leader in the future, then you won't think that you're the only one who can do the ministry while the people of God sit and admire you. Instead, you'll focus on discipling your congregation to maturity, equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. As an employer, you will know the name and the family members of your lowest employee, and you'll pay your people a living wage and you'll make sure you're not taking advantage of their loyalty or their fear of losing a job in order to overwork them. You'll clean up after yourself and even watch for chances to serve others by cleaning up after them. You'll orient your life biblically. Just like in Corinth, we have brought a lot of cultural baggage into the church. One of your problems is to learn to discern what's cultural and what's biblical. The Bible has the power to liberate you from the lies of the world, from the illusions that the world has taught you. Knowing God, knowing the Bible, that will shine a light on your wrong attitudes and the false gospel that you've been believing. 
and help you to think and act biblically. And God will be the hero of the story. And with that in mind, let's, we're going to sing a song in a minute, but let's read Jeremiah 9 one more time as uh, what used to be God's word to the Israelites. Now let, it, let him speak it straight to you. You think you're wise? Don't boast of your wisdom. You think you're strong? Don't boast of your strength. You think you're rich? Don't boast of your riches. Let him or her who boasts boast about this. And God says that she or he understands and knows me. For I am the Lord who exercises kindness justice and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. That's kingdom priorities there. That ought to be to what we align our lives to.